Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. What do we do about gut-level hatred in American political life? I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about it, but again... Purchase classes there, you keep this podcast free of charge, and you get great content. I mean, it's it's well worth your effort to go there and buy a class or 20. And if you want to get the latest class I have out, July of 2023, you can use the coupon code WASHINGTON, get $70 off that class at checkout. Reading George Washington, $70 off, just use the coupon code WASHINGTON, do it. You get a great class on George Washington. It's going to be something I think is eye-opening for you. It's Washington in his own words. And I do go through why George Washington is so important for American history. It's a great class. You can also, of course, click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can go to Spotify for podcasters to throw a few pennies my way. You can click on on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com or the heart button if you're watching on YouTube. Lots of great ways to support the show. But again, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Some people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. And, of course, comment on YouTube for the algorithm. All right. Well, let's talk about this particular topic of gut-level hatred in American politics. And I'll begin again by addressing the theme of this show, Think Locally, Act Locally. Years ago, when I started this podcast, I said, look, the real way to solve American political division is to decentralize. And I still believe that. I mean, if we decentralize the United States... If we actually had real discussions about centralization of power, if we had real discussions about federalism, if we had real discussions about the nature of the federal government, we, I think, could see some solutions to some of the major issues that are confronting Americans today. But we have to actually decide that we're not going to care what happens in other states at times, that we're not going to have any kind of worry about what happens in California if you don't live there. Now, if somehow California is impacting you, well, then you should worry about it. But if it's something that's of local concern, purely local concern, then you shouldn't worry about that at all. The problem is we worry about, and you see it all the time, you go to news sites, we worry about what happens in California. Headline, Safeway grocery stores are now you know, putting up barriers to checkouts in San Francisco. Who cares? I don't live in San Francisco. If I lived in San Francisco, that'd be a big issue. I don't live there, so I'm not worried about it. And again, this is the issue that we have in America. We nationalize everything, and everything that could be a very localized issue, crime, 
in San Francisco is a local issue, should be dealt with there. We see it with members of Congress. Subways flood in New York City. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez jumps to the floor of the House and says, we need to do this, do something about this in Congress. Why? Why should we spend taxpayer dollars on New York City subways? If New York thinks this is a good problem, they should address it, or a big problem. They should address it in New York. They've got plenty of revenue there, but yet they keep asking and begging for more federal dollars. Now, there's a reason for that. This has been going on now for over 200 years, and in the early Federal Republic, the Jeffersonians blocked most of this stuff, you know, specific targeted internal improvements that would help only local areas, you know, very specific areas. They blocked it. In fact, the class that I'm doing right now that you're going to get next month, reading Andrew Jackson, is the next class. I talk about some of this stuff. So this issue of internal improvements has been around for a long time. We've just decided that the Congress should do everything. And this gets down to these gut-level divisions. In, a, in an opinion piece at the New York Times, I'm going to get into, that addresses this. But again, if we had real federalism in America, then those things would not impact most people. They'd be worrying about the crime in their own city or the education of their own children in their own communities. They'd be worrying about these things on the local level, where they really belong. They'd be worried about their fire department, police protection, fire, uh, I'm sorry, a trash pickup, sewage, you know, uh, water uh, water. Uh, quality. These are the kind of things they will worry about there. And of course, you can bridge that out to the state as well. You know, water quality might be a bigger issue for the state in general. Maybe, or it could be a couple of states. You know, where I live, there is, there's two states involved in the water that we often get, or at least in one part of the area where I, where I uh, live. They're worried about the water because another state's involved in that. So you could get some of these things. But generally, most issues you're going to deal with are on a local level and of local concern. And these gut-level divisions wouldn't be so apparent. They've been there for 400 years. They've been there. But the federal government, the federal constitution, the federal republic was supposed to be able to handle these things because we had real federalism. And this is how the whole constitution was sold to the states. Don't worry about what happens in Massachusetts if you live in South Carolina because Massachusetts is not going to affect you and vice versa. Don't worry about South Carolina if you're in Massachusetts. They're just going to be South Carolina and we're going to be Massachusetts and everything's going to be okay. The problem became when you had people in both areas, but particularly in New England, start agitating on a variety of issues. And we think, oh yeah, it's just about slavery, McClendon. So you're admitting it. It's all about slavery. No, 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 no. It was about power and what they wanted the federal government to do. And in fact, that's what we're looking at now. The real issue in American politics is about power. Enforcing somebody to do something you don't you want them to do and they don't want to do. It comes down to power. And you think about what Trump, you know, Trump in 2016, 17, all the people on the right were so happy about Trump because he owned the libs. He'd go out on Twitter and he'd make fun of people and he would say funny things. And gosh, it is funny. Right? The, the, the Democrats, the left, are really bad at this kind of stuff. They, I mean, their, their cutdowns are just completely stupid most of the time. But Trump was really funny with this stuff. And so owning the libs became something that everybody, oh, everybody loves it. We're going to own the libs. We're going to force them to do what we want them to do. Of course, as I've talked about on this show many times, the problem with all of that mentality simply comes down to this. 
How long did Trump control the executive office? And really, did he have that much influence over it long term? And what's happened? What happens when you hand the keys to owning the libs to those who are going to own the conservatives? What happens when the left gains power, and they always will, and they use the same apparatus and do the exact same things to the right? What happens? We're seeing it. And so this is the real issue that we have in American politics. So we had decentralization. You wouldn't worry about this so much. You wouldn't really even care who's president. You wouldn't care about a lot of things that happened in the center because they would have no impact on your everyday life. Joe Biden would be virtually irrelevant, which is what he should be. Donald Trump would be virtually irrelevant, which is what he should be. You see? So let's get into this piece at the New York Times. Again, it's an opinion piece. And it's written by Thomas Edsall. And I'm going to skip around in the piece because there are some things in here that I found interesting. Some polling data and some other things. Edsall's a, a leftist. I mean, he's far left, really. But he says some interesting things in this piece, so I want to discuss it. And then, of course, what is the takeaway from this, I think, is very important. He says, divisions between Democrats and Republicans have expanded far beyond the traditional fault lines based on race, education, gender, the urban-rural divide, and economic ideology. From the beginning, he's saying that divisions are basically ideology. Because even when you look at things like race, education, gender, all that comes down in some ways, in his mind, at least in political divisions, to ideology. That's... The real division is about power. Who can control the reins of government? He says, Polarization now encompasses sharp disagreements over the significance of patriotism and nationalism, as well as a fundamental split between those seeking to restore perceived past glories and those who embrace the future. Again, the, the dichotomy there is false. The people that are trying to restore past glories, and they don't want to embrace the future at all. The people that want to embrace the future don't want any past glories. They do. It's when those past glories begin, in their mind, and of course, even those on the right who want to restore uh, perceived past perceived past glories, right? This is what it, so just putting it perceived. He could have said restore past glories, but perceived because Edsel has to show you that he's a leftist and these are just perceived glories. But uh, regardless, we could have said that, and these people don't want to have future? They don't embrace the future? Well, of course they do. But they want to temper it. He says, Mark Hetherington, a political scientist at the University of North Carolina, describes the situation this way in an email to me. Quote, because political beliefs now reflect deeply held worldviews about how the world ought to be, challenging traditional ways of doing things on the one hand and putting a break on that change on the other, partisans look across the aisle at each other and absolutely do not understand how their opponents can possibly understand the world as they do. He says, we have these levels of polarization today because of the gains non-dominant groups have made over the last 60 years. You see, the only reason that we have this is because white people are no longer in charge. I mean, this is what they're getting at here. They're threatened. You see, it's all about threats. White Americans are threatened by all these things happening. And it's all because of race. The Democrats no longer apologize for challenging traditional hierarchies and establishing pathways. They revel in it. 
Republicans see a world changing around them uncomfortably fast, and they want to slow it down, maybe even take a step backward. But if you're a person of color, a woman who values gender equality, or an LGBT person, would you want to go back to 1963? I doubt it. It's something we are going to have to live with until a new set of issues arises to replace this set. Now, notice the year that he chose there, 1963. Why would he choose 1963? And actually, Edsel talks about it. He says, this is the year before the 1964 Civil Rights Act, you see. That's the year everything changes. Now, I've mentioned on this show that we have different reconstructions in America, or at least that's the perception. But in reality, what we have is an ongoing reconstruction. And what's happened is both parties have embraced it. Both political parties do embrace reconstruction, even though Ed Saul and others thinks we have these sharp divisions. We don't. Not on the fundamental issues. I don't think anyone in the Republican Party would really say we need to get rid of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Now, I know this has been brought up recently in certain circles, uh, even in, in some pretty prominent books, that maybe 1964 did change everything. But... Um, we do have this position of 1963 to 64. So if we go back to 63, we don't have the civil 64 Civil Rights Act, and the revolution doesn't get a doesn't get a kick. You see, the revolution had stalled. This is the Claremont position. The revolution should have stopped somewhere in the 60s. It should have gone on till the 60s, but basically after Brown v. Board of Education, it got out of hand in their mind. Maybe you would find some that would agree with the 64 Civil Rights Act. But in so many ways, Brown v. Board of Education should have been it. We shouldn't have had all this other stuff happen. But we need to get, the revolution needs to go so far and then stop. Now, what the leftists will tell you is that, no, 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 64 was important and the revolution needs to be carried further than that. It needs to go on. There needs to be another Civil Rights Act. I think they would support some type of legislation. I know they would. That would create kind of another civil rights movement in America that would uh, codify things that they think are part of this new revolution. And it would tear down these structural problems they see, what they call structural racism and other things. Right? So there needs to be another revolution. And there are books written about this now. Claremont people would say, no, 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 we went far enough. 19, we, we gone far enough. What are you talking about? We, we'd achieved the goals of... The Civil War. We'd achieved the goals of St. Abraham, the wise, and of course all the radical Republicans. We've gotten there. We just need to stop now. Well, the Democrats and the left would say, why? Why do we stop there? Why does the revolution keep going? And I think that's the interesting takeaway from all of this. There's going to be no stopping the left and the progressives. That cat is out of the bag. There's going to be no stopping it at all. So how do you live within it? And of course, that's when you have to start thinking about decentralization. Now, would the Democrats on the left actually let it happen? Probably not. Not in any meaningful way. Because they know once they get power, they can do all kinds of things with them. These people really are power hungry and they are little petty tyrants. And they want to control everything you do. The conservative Democrat is gone. The Democrat that would speak out against some of the, the excesses of, of the Democratic Party now 
is gone. They're gone. A lot of them did either get out of politics. Maybe they uh, started voting Republican. But they're gone. The Democrat Party has moved irrevocably to the left, and it will never come back. At the same time, the Republican Party really has also moved to the left, not quite as quickly, but they've always been on the left, when you think about it. Go back to the 1860s, Republicans are still on the left. So Edsall says, Toward the end of the 20th century, Republicans moved rightward at a faster pace than Democrats moved leftward. In recent decades, however, Democrats have accelerated their shift toward more liberal positions, and Republicans' movement to the right has slowed, in part because the party had reached the outer boundaries of conservatism. Bill McInturf, a founding partner of the Republican polling firm Public Opinion Strategies, released a study in June, Polarization and a Deep Dive on Issues by Party. The document, the shifting, it documents the shifting views of Democratic and Republican voters. Among the findings based on the firm's polling for NBC News, quote, From 2012 to 2022, the percentage of Democrats who described themselves as very liberal grew to 29% from 19%. So in 10 years, 10% more people call themselves very liberal. That's telling. Part of this, I think, is a result of the American education system. And, of course, social media. I think social media has driven some of this stuff. In 2013, when asked if their religion, 10% of Democrats said none. In 2023, it was 38%. The percentage of Republicans given this answer was 7% in 2012 and 12 in 2023. From 10 to 38%, from 19 to 29%, these are huge jumps. Now remember, these are, these are young people, a lot of them, that they're going to start getting. They're going to start capturing more young people in these things. You can't blame it on the internet necessarily because the internet had been around before this point. But you can start talking about things like social media, the prevalence of handheld social media accounts, American education, which has moved to the left, even though the lefties will tell you, it's all, it's all to the right, it's all to the right. This is ridiculous garbage. Anyone who's just had a day in a school knows that it's to the left and it always is to the left. We're seeing more of it now. The percentage of Democrats who agreed that government should do more to solve problems and help meet the needs of people grew from 45% in 1995 to 67% in 07 to 82% in 2021, a 37% gain. At the same period, Republican argument, uh, I'm sorry, agreement rose from 17 to 23%, a six-point increase. So this is the question. Government should do more to solve problems and help meet the needs of people. 30, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 82% of Democrats believe that. It was 45% in 1995. So within 30 years, it's almost doubled. Republicans at 23%. You see? that I mean, that to me was striking. The amount of people out there that think the government needs to do more This is, but again, you see the, the R&D, but in some ways it becomes irrelevant. 23% of Republicans said the exact same thing, a quarter. So you put those things together and you've got 
activist voters. This is why education, it's why this podcast, it's why all the things I do, my Clannahan Academy, all that stuff is so important because we've got to try to turn these positions around. He says, the Democrats' move to the left provoked an intensely hostile reaction from the right, as you may have noticed. Yes, because the right is just a bunch of wackos that are going to go out and burn stuff down and beat people up. Oh, wait, that is the left and the riots that we see on TV. So Wetzel says he asked uh, a sociologist, Arlie Hochschild, who's a sociologist at the University of California, Berkeley, who's been working on a new book about Eastern Kentucky. Of course, you've got to study Eastern Kentucky. It's uh, you know the deep, dark hills of Eastern Kentucky. About the threatening policies conservatives believe liberals are imposing on them. You see, the threatening policies liberals are imposing. Now think about that. You've got Kentucky, right? You've got Eastern Kentucky. And uh, you have this sociologist from California studying the South like a specimen. But more importantly, think about that phrase. Liberals are imposing on them. What's the, what's the real issue here? It's centralization of power. If it wasn't for the left and centralization of power, the left would have no power over Eastern Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky could be Eastern Kentucky, and that would be it. But because of centralization, this is why I say think locally, act locally. Because of centralization, this is what we get. She wrote back, Regarding threats felt by the right, I'd say all of them, especially trans issues, evoke a sense that this is the last straw. In their minds, the left is now unhinged, taking... I'm sorry, talking to itself in front of us while trying to put us under its cultural rule. Now again, think about what Hochschild is saying here. It's about centralization of power. Trying to put us under cultural rule. Look, Ed Saul and all these other people are missing the real solution to this. Now, that this is a this is a piece where he says, I have no idea what's going to happen. We're just going to get more polarized politics because we're all operating under a Lincolnian worldview where the center has all the power and the, the states, the real building blocks of everything, have none. If we just gutted that, right, if we started thinking about this in a much more reasonable way, founding way, none of this would be happening. Edsall says, Republican aversion to contemporary dem democratic agenda has intensified, according to two sociologists, Rachel Wetz of Brown and Rob Willer of Stanford. In the abstract of their 2022 paper, Anti-Racism and Its Discontents, the Prevalence of and Political Influence of Opposition to Anti-Racism Among White Americans, Wetz and Willer. I mean, think about that. First of all, look, look how long that title is. This is academics. If you're not in involved in academics, this is what you get. Academics love uh, subtitles. It's, it's maddening to the extreme. Anti-racism and its discontents. Colon. The prevalence and political influence of opposition to anti-racism among, among white Americans. You could have just cut it off at the first part. I mean, look, if you're going to go into writing things, learn how to write titles that people can get. And not all these subtitles and everything else. It's just ridiculous. Don't do all that stuff. 
From calls to ban critical race theory to concerns about woke culture, American conservatives have mobilized in opposition to anti-racist claims and movements. Here we propose that this opposition has crystallized into a distinct racial ideology among white Americans, profoundly shaping contemporary racial politics. They're calling this anti-anti-racism. Um, and this is interesting. This is really interesting. Uh, so, because they're saying that this is the new issue, right? It's, it's really just white people being racist still. I mean, that's the whole core of everything people propose. is white racism. Edsall says, the degree to which per the partisan divide has become still more deeply ingrained was captured by three political scientists, John Sides of Vanderbilt, uh, Chris Tonovich and Lynn Vaverick, both of UCLA, in their 2022 book, The Bitter End. Vaverick wrote by email that she and her co-authors described the state of American politics as calcified. Calcified. Calcification sounds like polarization, but it's more like polarization plus. Calcification derives from an increased homogeneity within parties, an increased heterogeneity uh, between the parties, on average, the parties are getting further apart on the on policy ideas, the rise in importance of issues based on identity, like immigration, abortion, or transgender policies, instead of, for example, economic issues like tax rates and trade, and finally, the near balance in the electorate between Democrats and Republicans. The last side, it makes every election a high-stakes election, since the other side wants to build a world that is quite different from the one your side wants to build. Again, I think this is actually interesting. So think of what they just said. We have calcification. And what's this all about? Well, the culture war. I think the culture war has become pretty prominent because people are looking at this. This is Pat Buchanan warned about in 1992. People are looking at this and saying, oh my gosh, we're being, this is awful. And we don't want the other side. It doesn't matter if you're on left or right to control what we're doing. It's about power. So every election becomes the most important election of your lifetime. That they say at the end, every election becomes that election. Why? because of centralization of power. It was this way in 1860. It was this way in 1850, 1852, 1856, 1854, then none of these issues really matter anymore. You see, you could you could talk about these things at a state level, and you know that in some states, if you're on the right, you're never going to see this stuff because you could just cut it out. It wasn't for the federal court system. It wasn't for Congress doing what they do, which is centralizing everything, and the president just becoming uh, you know the king, the elected king. We wouldn't see these issues. We would not see these issues. Now, there's two things that he actually focuses on here that are big questions. And this all comes down to Lincolnian nationalism. As I said before, both parties believe in Lincolnian nationalism. One group mentioned 1963 is a cutoff. This is the West Coast Straussians, the Jaffaites. Hey, everything was great until we got to 1964, and then things went off the rails. Or they could say 1964 was even okay because it was the continuation of this Lincolnian vision. But at that point, we got to stop. 
The other side says 1964 was just the beginning of the, of the next stage of the revolution. Why do we stop at 1964? Why do we stop at 1963? It's amazing that at the beginning, that's what they picked, 1963. A year before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because you see, even West Coast Straussians would be fine with everything up to 1963. 1964 is a whole new process. That's when the revolution really begins again. But it hasn't gone far enough because, you see, I think the left would vote for another Civil Rights Act. We, we would get another one. They just pile on the 64 Act. They just keep adding things to it. But in reality, what they really want to do is create an entirely new civil rights revolution. But it all comes down to centralization of power. But these two things, I'm going to go to nationalism. They mentioned patriotism, but I'm going to, I'm going to skip over that and go to nationalism. Edsall says in their 2021 paper, the, Parting, the Partisan Sorting of America, How Nationalist Cleavages Shaped the 2016 Presidential Election. Again, an academic title. Three sociologists at NYU, the University of uh, Haifa and Harvard, argue that the United States has become increasingly divided by disagreement over conceptions of nationalism. Nationalist beliefs shaped respondents' voting preferences in the 2016 presidential election, they wrote. The results suggest that competing understanding of American nationhood were effectively mobilized by candidates from the two parties. Competing understanding of American nationhood. Now, I don't think there really is a competing understanding here. There is one understanding. It's Lincolnianism, but it's Lincolnian nationalism. But within that, you have how that works. To the left, to the left, on the Democrat side, they call this Creedal nationalism. Creedal nationalism. Creedal nationalists favor elective criteria of national belonging, rating subjective identification with the nation, and respect for American laws and institutions is very important. They are more equivocal than others about the importance of lifelong residence and language skills and view birth in the country, having American ancestry, and being Christian as not very important. It's the proposition nation. Now, I would say that even on the right, you have a lot of that, the proposition nation. The other three types of nationalism trend right, according to these sociologists. Disengaged nationalists characterized by an arm's-length relationship to the nation, which for some may verge on dissatisfaction with and perhaps even animus toward it, are drawn to Donald Trump's darkly dystopian depiction of America. Restrictive and ardent nationalists apply elective and descriptive criteria of national belonging, including the importance of Christian faith. Restrictive and ardent nationalists differ according to the authors in their degree of attachment to the nation, pride in America's accomplishments, and evaluation of the country's relative standing in the world. For example, 11% of restrictive nationalists voice strong pride in the way the country's democracy works, compared with 70% of ardent nationalists. These and other divisions provide William Galston, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, who studies how well governments work, the grounds from which to paint a bleak future of American politics. Quote, issues of individual and group identity, especially along the dimensions of race and gender, have moved to the center of our politics at every level of the federal system, Galston wrote by email. The economic axis that defined our politics from the beginning of the New Deal to the end of of Reagan has been displaced. And so Galston says, when the core political issues are matters of right and wrong rather than more or less, compromise becomes much more difficult and disagreement becomes much more intense. 
If I think we should spend X on farm programs and you think it should be 2X, neither of us thinks the other is a moral or evil. But if you think I'm murdering babies and I think you're opposing women, it's hard for us to each not to characterize the other as in morally negative terms. So again, what Galson has pointed out here is the culture war. And that's become front and center and the economic issues are moving away. Though I do think the economic issues are important for a lot of people tied into the cultural stuff. And the economic issues like uh, free programs and welfare and corporate welfare and individual welfare and all this kind of stuff. How, does all the, how do all these things work? Dawson says, this is why we have more interest in elections. Because people think it's, I mean, everything is politicized. It's actually becoming ridiculous. But on the other hand, how do you solve this problem? Well, you decentralize. So Edsel asks at the end of the piece, where does this leave us going into the 2024 election? Where does it leave us? How does this affect everything? Where does it leave us? Jonathan Weiler, a political scientist at the University of North Carolina, provided the following answer by email. Quote, when partisan conflict is no longer, no longer primarily about policies or even values, but more about people's basic worldviews, the stakes do feel higher to partisans. So he cited some poll data showing in 2016, 35% of Democrats said Republicans were more immoral than Democrats. And 47% of Republicans said Democrats are more immoral. In 2022, those numbers had jumped dramatically. 63% of Democrats said Republicans were more immoral, and 72% of Republicans said Democrats were more immoral. So again, these are now value-based things. Value-based. But he's saying it's not values. It's, it's about worldview, but it's really about value. How you perceive the other side, and why? Because you throw in the, you, you put all this together, and you throw in the center, and this is what Calhoun talked about a lot. And you get these really vitriolic, extremely divided groups of people. When in reality, those issues should be dealt with at the state level or at the local level. What we need is a massive dose of decentralization in America. Now, how we pull that off, I don't know. As I said earlier in the program, we need more education. We need people to start thinking about these things in a much more radically decentralized way. I don't care what happens in your state because I don't live there. You shouldn't care what happens in my state because you don't live here. And we should start really living and let live. I mean, that's the whole point. That is the real core of diversity. It's live and let live. We're going to have diversity even in how we think about things outside of race. I mean, we're going to have different views on all kinds of things. We need to live and let live. In this context, Weiler continued, it's not that these specific issues are unimportant. Our daily political debates still revolve around them, whether DEI, abortion, etc. But they become secondary in a sense to the gut-level hatred and mistrust that now defines our pol politics, so that almost whatever issue one party puts in front of its voters will rouse the strongest passions. What matters now isn't the specific objects of scorn, but the intensity with which our partisans are likely to feel that those targets threaten them existentially. The threat. But here is the thing. How do, again, how do we solve this? You decentralize. Now, in some ways, of course, we can feel like that's banging our head against the wall. And when you go back and you look at, say, the 18th, where have we seen this before? The 1850s. 
What happened? We had secession. Now, is secession likely to happen in the next year? No. Is it likely to happen in the next two, three years? Probably not. We need an entire review of how we do that, and that's because of Lincolnian nationalism. You would find people on the right and the left speaking in unison. I mean, this is where I find it funny with people in the West Coast Straussians, the Claremont people. They, they try to go through mental contortions and gymnastics to come up with the way that Lincoln could have supported secession in the way they want to. If you start with Lincoln, you end with coercion. If you start with Lincoln, you end with one-size-fits-all, top-down, strong central government. This is why Lincoln should never be your guy if you're on the right. Never be your guy. Really, the person we should be looking at is Washington, if you want to talk about a nationalist, because Washington was a particular kind of nationalist. He was a nationalist that thought the Union should benefit all and burden all equally, and most issues should be left to the states. He was that kind of nationalist. He was a southern kind of nationalist. Even though that's not the way he's described, that's why you need my reading George Washington class, because I go through all of this stuff. Again, coupon code WASHINGTON, 70 bucks off, get it. Time's running out on that, by the way. It's only going to last for the month of January. Uh, I'm sorry, month of July. Excuse me, month of July 2023. Time is running out to get that $70 off. You'll never see it for that price again. But that's the kind of nationalism we need, is that Washingtonian nationalism. A union that benefits all states and burdens all states equally. And, of course, the people of the states. And that leaves most things, as Washington described it, to the states. So, uh, this is where um, this piece highlights some really important data, but they miss the bigger picture. They miss everything because they're operating from a Lincolnian nationalist framework. And if you can't break away from that, if you can't see beyond that, this is one of the hardest things people have to do in their political lives in America is break away from Lincolnian nationalism. If you can't do that, then you're always going to be bound to the next election and the voting better and these kind of, I mean, the de very definition of insanity in getting different outcomes because it's just getting worse and worse and worse and the quality of people in office is getting worse and worse and worse. Why? Because the people in office really don't run anything anymore is one reason, but that's one issue. And the other is because we keep moving in a direction of the lowest common denominator all the time. But regardless, is secession going to happen? I mean, would Biden send in the tanks right now if a state left the union? I think so. What we need are people to start thinking that secession is peaceful. Secession just saying, look, you're going to go your way and I'm going to go my way. And this is what we're going to do. And everything's going to be okay. And look, we can still have an alliance. We could still have some type of you know, uh, discussion about defense or these kind of things. We could still do that. We're still all Americans in this. The fear, of course, is that you're going to get California break off and they're going to become China right here. And that China or Russia or something would pick us all apart. And I mean, that's not an unjustifiable fear, looking at the quality of people that are running things around the, around the current United States. But regardless, these are the kind of things. Maybe regional governments, maybe we still have a central authority that can do defense and that's it. But these are real big questions that we need to have in America if we want to have peaceful, a peaceful political climate. That's the whole beauty of federalism. It was to provide a peaceful political climate. If we get centralization, extreme centralization, we're never going to have it. And that's what all these people miss. 
That's the gut level hatred. And that's why I think in locally and acting locally is so important. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week of the Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next week. See you then.